some in the Protestant tradition really follow the church calendar or the church year. Um, does anyone know about the church calendar, the liturgical calendar, where um, unlike our pagan calendar that most all of us follow, we're getting ready to end a year, but in the church calendar, last Sunday was the last Sunday of the church calendar, and this Sunday is the first Sunday of the church year. It's the beginning of Advent. And the reason, you know, we might start following the church calendar a little more rigorously as I've been studying it this week is because the way it was, it, it was formulated in the 300s A.D., um, and it was a way for the church as it spread throughout the world to be unified, number one. Number two, as you look at the church calendar, it is all based around the person and work of Jesus Christ, which is kind of a cool, well, cool, cool way to tell time, and, and if you ask me. And that's why Advent is the first of the church calendar because it's a way of saying when God sent his son, he definitively altered the way in which time is interpreted. At the Advent is a Latin word that means coming. And so because we are 2,000 plus years after the fact that Jesus has come, we are now those who participate in Advent, not just with thanksgiving, but with longing for him to come again. Are you tracking with me? And so Advent is this church season that the church globally celebrates where we enter into the Romans 8 kind of gnarly, I studied, it's a gnarly passage where there's a longing and there's like a groaning that's happening even in the earth for the glory of God to be revealed through the resurrection. There is a longing that's happening. You can read your newspapers, the longing in your own soul for satisfaction and meaning and purpose and friendship and and to be loved and to be great and to be cherished and to leave a legacy. These longings are the longings that we take with us into this first of the church calendar where we enter into the longing that it says in Scripture that creation participates in until Jesus comes again. So isn't it significant and a little bit tragic that the season when the church is called to enter into the longing that only Jesus can satisfy and fill happens to also be the time in the pagan calendar when we reach in every other way to fill that longing. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? It's called Black Friday and Cyber Monday. And so in the church, the church is not, our job is not to stand up on a hill and to bark about how the culture's, it's, it's, it's through our participation in the life in Jesus, in his kingdom, that is meant to declare there is another way to tell time. There's another way. There's another rhythm. There's, there's a different kind of ethic. There's a different kind of code and reality of what life entails. And we say it is found and flows and sustained through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so you have Advent, and then after Advent, you have Epiphany, which celebrates the revealing of Jesus to the Gentile world. Yippee. And out of that, you have, you, it leads up to, Advent, uh, to Lent, where we fast and we pray. And then you have Holy Week, and then you have Good Friday, and then you have Holy Saturday, and then you have Easter, and then we celebrate Easter in the church calendar for seven weeks until you have Pentecost. Holy Spirit poured out at Pentecost. The church goes global and mobile, and then from Pentecost all the way till last Sunday, 
you celebrate what they call ordinary time, which one, one guy likes to call it kingdom time, when the glory of the God and the gospel of Jesus spreads throughout all the earth. That was a crash course lesson on the church calendar. It's the one time the church, almost all Protestant church, sort of hit pause and will enter into some church calendar stuff. But that's the point. And so for this first Sunday of Advent, I've asked Pastor Ken to come and to light our candle. There are four Sundays that lead to Advent, and each one of these represents something in which Jesus came to bring the earth. Not just once, but a present reality that he wants us to live in light of through his person and through his work. And so if you would, could we pray this morning? Lord, as we hit pause in the craziness of our culture and busyness, Lord, we, we long for you. We, we don't want to fill those longings and cravings of our heart with anything else but you. And Father, in the ways that we have, we repent this morning. We hit pause and we slow down to look to you, to celebrate you, to behold you, to receive you, to align our lives with your truth, to align our relationships with your purposes. And God, I pray today as we start this journey of Advent that your spirit would be our comforter and our guide all along the way. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen and amen. Part of what makes Advent so unique, participating in it, is because of how glorious Jesus is, his first coming has forever altered the way in which we experience life today. In every way. How, how I experience sort of my interpersonal dynamic reality. What do I do with my shame? What do I do with my guilt? What do I do with my longings and my cravings? It's, it's altered how we treat one another within the church and the kingdom. It's altered how we view God by seeing Jesus in flesh, representing and replicating God's character and likeness in every single way. But part of what we're going to do this Advent is we're going to save a lot of the Christmas narrative, Matthew 1 and 2, Luke 1 and 2. We're going to save a lot of that for our Christmas Eve service. And we're going to join the prophet Isaiah on a journey of longing where he looked forward to a day that Jesus would come. And like almost all Old Testament prophecy, you can read it in one of three ways. And a lot of times you can read it in all three ways. Number one, there was a future immediate sort of fulfillment. So in Isaiah, this picture even though it was written that we're going to read in Isaiah 2, 700 years before Jesus, there was a partial fulfillment with the rebuilding of the temple, the second temple that was sort of ramped up and glorified through the, person, through the work of Herod, who was sort of a wannabe king, didn't come from the right line, but he knew all the right people. So there's that way to read prophecy. Number two, there is a, a way to read prophecy, specifically these ones we'll look at throughout Advent, that have found their fulfillment in the person and work of Jesus Christ. 
So these prophecies, something definitively has happened with Christ's first coming. You'll see that in this passage of Isaiah 2. Then there's a third way. Someone say third way. Where there is a future fulfillment when Christ comes again. That we can experience some of number two and number three right now in the in-between. The now and the not yet. But that there is a future reality that is going to definitively come once and for all at the second advent of Jesus Christ. So here we are between two and three. We look back and we learn from number one, what was fulfilled. We certainly reflect on what has happened in the person and work of Jesus. And then we participate in this between two and three, between the now and the not yet. We participate by allowing what is true of God in his kingdom to become true with a greater increasing reality of our own life. All in favor, say amen. amen. So this is the vision that we're going to camp on. And the reason I love vision or pictures or stories, who loves, does anyone love movies or novels? Just let me see your hands. Anyone lying? Raise your hand. Okay. Oh, we love, we love stories. We love color. We love music. We love things that move us. Amen? And the reason why I love these pictures, these snapshots that we're going to look at for four weeks throughout the book of Isaiah is because unlike Isaiah just saying, here's what I mean by this prophecy. Propositional phrase number one, God is going to come. Propositional phrase number two, he's going to be God. He doesn't give us this bullet point list. He paints a picture. And prophets always do this. They paint a picture where our imagination and the cravings and longings of our heart, they see this picture and they say, I want in. The reason why prophetic vision and why it's so significant that Isaiah starts Isaiah 2 with the vision that he saw and then he declares through the prophetic word is because it's an issued out invitation to the people of God, get caught up in this vision that I'm casting. Find yourself in the narrative. Find yourself in the story. Don't be a sideline player. Be an on-the-field participant. Are you tracking with me? And the reason I love the visions and the, and, the, and the things that God revealed by his spirit to the prophet Isaiah is because they're as relevant today as they were relevant to 700 years ago. Uh, 700 years before Christ, or 27-ish, 100 years before, ago. Is they, they, it's like... Giving, getting a script to a play, but yet the goal is not just to master and read the script, it's to get in and play it. Are you tracking with me? I've, I've been reading this book called Desiring the Kingdom. It's taking me forever because it's, like it's like a seminary level reading, so it's like, oh, what did he say? I gotta read it again. But he gives this, most, this unbelievable, stunning metaphor, and he, and he talks about many of us have reduced our Christian experience to just the reading of rules and doctrine and dogma. And he said, that's kind of like reducing Hamlet to simply a script. Remember Shakespeare's play? And he said, it's like, there are some things you can learn by reading the script of Hamlet. Hmm, interesting character. Oh, stunning dialogue. Ooh, the turn of the plot. But there's a whole nother experience that happens when you see Hamlet played. Or any play. Does anyone like going to see plays or PCPA or movies? So, 
And this guy, James K.A. Smith is his name, Desiring the Kingdom, says that's how the Christian faith is meant to be experienced. It's not something we just read on a page as we're going to see through Isaiah 2. It's something we jump into and say, I get to participate. I get to enter into this vision, this story. And the Advent season is a glorious season because it is as relevant of every day of our life. The tension between how things are and how things should be. Does anyone feel the tension? How things are and how things should be. The longing, the groaning. And Isaiah gives us something to long for. So here it is in Isaiah chapter 2. This is what Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days, key phrase, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills and all nations will stream to it. Now you have to understand this, he's painting a picture. What do you think of when you think of mountains? Shout it out. Splendor, grandeur, view, height. Has anyone been to the Alps or the mountains or Banff or, or Cal- anyone? What's, what's your favorite mountain range? This is a test. Shout it out. Everest. Has anyone been to the southwest corner of Colorado, Durango, Telluride? So, oh, my goodness. Those are my favorite mountain peaks, the San Juan Mountains. What do mountains do they take your breath away? He's painting this picture of the mountain of the Lord being higher, being exalted. Let's keep going. Just wanted to fill in some colors. Many peoples will come and say, come, let's go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. Look at this vision. Oh, man. They, the nations, will beat their swords into plowshares. How many want to see that day? And their spears into pruning hooks to cultivate vineyards. Agriculture. Nation will not, say will not, take up sword against nation. Nor, not only will they not take up sword, they won't even train for war anymore. This, is, this has to be some sort of future vision. Verse 5, here's the issue of invitation. Come, descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. This unbelievable picture. I'm going to unpack it and then we'll have some implications and then we're going to pray. What is so stunning if you read Isaiah chapter 1 and then right after this passage you see how God's people Israel, they aren't exactly living up to their identity and purpose. Does anyone relate? And so Isaiah, right in the midst of the despondency and the injustice and the perversion and the hatred and the murder and the strife and the idolatry, has a hope-filled vision for his people. How many are thankful for hope-filled visions today? And he's saying, 
There is something more compelling than the threat of punishment, although there's plenty of threats of punishment in the, gospel, in the prophets. But there's a compel, something more compelling, and it's the promise of greatness if you will repent and obey. The last days here are these big fancy words that in many ways can be misinterpreted, but they have to be understood in terms of the Jewish Hebraic understanding of how history works. You have the present age and the age to come. So the last days, again, because we're reading this book, the Bible, look forward to a day when the age to come becomes a present reality. So last days in this picture relate to the Advent season. When Jesus came, which we'll talk about here in a few weeks, and we'll talk about every week, but we'll really talk about it in a few weeks. When Jesus came and he fulfilled righteousness and he died on the cross that we'll talk about a lot more later, later, and he rose again, we experience the dawning of the last days where history, the calendar was split and the age to come came breaking in through the person and work of Jesus right onto the present reality and scene. Now, the last days also refer and point to the day with a capital D. Say the day, the day. when the second advent will come, when he comes again and boom, new heavens, new earth. No more tears, no more sorrow. No more, come on, people. This is our Christian longing. We'll be reunited with those who've gone before us. We'll have glorified bodies. Come on, no more knee pain or back pain. And so the last days are multi-layered and faceted. But the prophet saw that in the last days, something would happen on a mountain that would have implications for nations. The New Testament makes it explicitly clear that the first advent was the dawning of the last days, but that these last days are crescendoing, and you can feel the groaning and the grumbling, depending on what you watch or listen to, for the definitive day when he'll come again. That's the season of advent, where to enter into that tension. And what I find so stunning here, mountains are where gods live throughout all of history, it was on mountaintops and high places that the nations would place their idols, would place and build and erect their temples. It was the place that, that the ancient Near Eastern people believed that God ruled the world. The gods ruled the world because it wasn't always Yahweh they were worshiping. And the, the, the crazy prophetic picture that Isaiah sees here is that there will come a day when one mountain will be raised above all mountains. And that when that mountain is set in place, the result will be not a few people, but streams of people will flow to this place. And what is it? Here's what's so stunning. What's going to draw them up this prophetic mountain? Not some cool program or not some, it will be that the Lord is ruling and reigning on his throne 
Isn't it something that we try to humdrum this thing up of the gospel, but what is most attractive about the gospel is the one to whom it points, Jesus Christ. Why will there be a mass migration to Zion? Isaiah saw it. What will motivate foreigners to go to Jerusalem? What, it's the opportunity to be taught by God himself. Come on, this is good news. My question is, what do you see when you open your eyes and your heart and your mind? What, what mountains do you see the nations, including our own and yourself? What are the mountains that we are ascending? Material. Material. Help me out. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? What are the cultural mountains that you see the mass and sea of humanity streaming? The mountain of self, the mountain of security through whatever means, the mountain of the mountain of fill in the blank. And I'm convinced, as are a lot of smart, way smarter people than me, all of it is an expression of the fact that we, in our very guts, are hardwired worshipers longing to ascribe worth and value to something. <laughs> Mountains. <gasps> oh, look, mountain of self. I'll try that one for a little bit. Has anyone tried that one out? How's it working? It always promises, but it never pays out. Or when you get what it promised, you experience it and you're left wanting. I'm just talking the truth. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? Where these mountains that attract us and draw us, but the prophet Isaiah saw a day when there would be something so compelling about the mountain of the Lord that not only will he issue the invitation, but that there will be dialogue on a personal level among the nations. Do you see this mountain? Let's go up there. There will be a longing in the hearts of nations and people to find their home, not in materialism or stuff or security or comfort or outward beauty or war or my guy or your guy or gal, but that they would find their security, they would find their identity in the one who reigns on the mountain, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And I'm convinced, beloved, that we are essentially and ultimately lovers to be human is to love. And the ultimate loves of our life are what we are fundamentally oriented and pursuing with all of our heart. Does anyone know what I'm saying here? So, so the question as we hit pause is what are those mountains that you're drawn to today? You don't have to shout it out, but just be thinking. What are those mountains? What are those things that, that speak and they pull on your heartstrings? What are those things, those promises that you hear that look so, that they look like they'll pan out? What are those things that you get up thinking about? Do you have a picture in your head? What are those things that move you? Did you know that every woman, man, boy, and girl in every nation and every tribe, tongue, and language, everyone in the world has an ultimate vision of what they think the good life is? And it's this vision, again, back to imagination, these things that capture us. This vision is what we end up serving. This vision of what we think is the good life and success, and it ends up, instead of us, in, and instead of us um, ruling it, it ends up all too often claiming our allegiance and ruling us. Our ultimate love is what we worship. It is what we desire and what we love that animates our passion. This is just 
human existence. Does anyone just bear witness to that? We are hardwired lovers. Just whatever it is, I love it. I want to pour myself into it. Now, what is it that separates people? Not that, we, not that we love or don't love, but it's what we love. The object or aim or orientation of our hearts and our lives. And throughout Israel's history and for all too often our own history and story, our love and vision of what it means to flourish and succeed and thrive does not find its source in the Lord Jesus Christ. We get a picture that captures us, and so we get in line with that picture, and we give ourselves to it, but all too often, we're scaling the wrong mountain. The Apostle Paul, I don't have time to read it, but in Romans 1, you can go back and study it yourself this week, it is a large chunk of scripture where Paul fills in some of these gaps of what humanity and the mountains they climb and they worship instead of the one true God. And the issue of why this prophetic picture of Isaiah is so glorious is that we don't have to misplace our worship and our passion and pursuit any longer. That even though we look around and we see Humanity has almost lock, stock, and barrel bought into a lie, and they worship and serve created things instead of the creator, but that Isaiah saw a vision when the nations would no longer worship wrongly, but they would worship and learn from and walk in the light of the one true God. Isaiah continues back to his prophetic vision in verse 3. When the nations go up to this mountain, what's going to happen? He will, God will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his path. The law will go out from Zion, which is this, this spiritual connotation of God's dwelling. The word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And it's important to say here, beloved, here's where most of us get stuck, if we're honest which I want to be honest today. So many of us, we believe Jesus is Lord. We believe that it's only through him we experience salvation. Just nod your head at me if you believe some of this stuff. We believe that his blood and his grace alone can free us from sin, the past reality of sin, victory over sin, and the future hope that one day we'll get new bodies. So many of us, though, we stop and just knowing his ways. Here's what's so significant about what Isaiah saw. They will not only know his ways or confess. What does he say in verse 4, verse 3? They will walk in his ways. Does anyone else struggle with that part? Come on, I got some people in the front row helping me over here. Does anyone else struggle with that? You know his ways but the message somehow got lost in translation between your head and your feet. I know his ways. I know a lot. I mean, I know a lot. Listen, the, the Lord gave me a picture this week that I was, I've, you know, on my runs, this is where I do a lot of my repenting, because I just work it out. Whatever the Lord's challenged me with, I just work it out on the trail as I just try to not die and pass out. But the Lord showed me that Chad... You are guilty of this. And he didn't condemn me, but he just let me know. 
This is you, dude, not the ones you're going to preach to. And here was the picture he gave me. Picture a, a, you know, a horse race. What happens that cues the start of the race? And here's what the Lord showed me, that I so often fall into this trap. Chatty, you're busy talking about the gun. What kind of caliber? What kind of sound? Was it 25 feet away or 45 feet away? You're talking about the gun, my ways, the cue. Yeah, you can talk and paint the picture of Jesus and the glory of the gospel, but did you know that it's not just about knowing truth, it's about living, it's about running out of the gates and living in light of the truth. And he gave me that silly picture of a horse race. I'm like, who's the horse, who's the gun, and who's the stall here, Lord? But so many of us, we know so much. I, my, my best friend, the guy who preached last week, we've been talking all week, and I've been saying, I've been saying over and over, dude, I know so much, and I'm not saying that in arrogance, I'm saying that as a self-indictment. I can quote chapters, I'm not boasting, I just, I know so much, but what's stunning about this vision of Isaiah is that they won't stop at the knowing. The knowing will influence and inform every step they take. And that's a now and not yet reality. We can live utterly different and transformed right here and right now, praise the Lord. But so many of us, we think that just knowing is the end goal. And, I, and Timothy says this, the point of this whole book, the whole book in 2 Timothy 3, the all scripture is God breathed and it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Do you know what righteousness is? We'll go online and listen to Rick's message. He unpacks it. But righteousness is that big word that the prophets and then Jesus himself uses to describe what it looks like, the experience of God's reign and his rule, his holiness, his beauty, his glory in a up-to-date living testimony, interdynamic reality through the Holy Spirit. Righteousness is this realm and reign of all that God has made available for us to experience and live in light of here and now. Righteousness. And he's saying all of the scripture is to train us to participate in that. Righteousness. So that, say so that. The servant of God, that's you and me, because if Jesus is our prototype, he was the servant of the Lord, you and I are servants. So that the servant of God may be, I love this, who knows the verse by heart, thoroughly, say thoroughly, thoroughly. equipped to know a lot of good facts. <laughs> Help me out. For every good work. The point of this is never to stop here. It's to change us from the inside out and coupled with the Holy Spirit's power to influence and to correct and transform everything about our experience, every step that we take. And Isaiah was looking forward to a day, by the way, when this would become a reality for all the nations. When the word, the law of the Lord, would go forth from Zion. It's hard to miss that this happens in the Jesus story. It starts in the Jesus story. Who are the first ones in Matthew's account? bowing at the feet of baby Jesus, the king, of the real king of the Jews, the Magi, these Gentile stargazers, the nations, 
at the feet of Jesus, worshiping, bringing their gifts and their treasures at the feet of the one who is the word made flesh. All that God, I don't have time for the burden of proof, but we'll unpack it the next three weeks. All that God has ever wanted to say, he has said in and through Jesus Christ. In the past, Hebrews 1 tells us, he spoke to us through the prophets many times and in various ways, but in these last days, there it is again, he has spoken to us by his son. The son is the exact representation of the father's glory. And after he provided purification for sins, he sat down. The work was finished. When the nations come in Isaiah's vision and they're taught and they begin to walk by the Lord, it is no longer they themselves seated on the throne of their heart, but the Lord. This is why Isaiah goes on. He will judge between the nations. How many know that judgment is not just punitive, it is redemptive? Not only will the Lord one day come and judge right and wrong, or those who are in and those who are out, the Lord Jesus, part of what the glory of his judgment that we're going to look at next week in Isaiah 11, is that when his judgment comes, things that are not as they should be become as they were designed to be. Boom! The judgment of the Lord. When the Lord comes in and he lobs and he speaks the truth and the reality from his perspective, it is not only punitive in the sense that those who are in need of judgment received, but it's also that he comes and he judges so that we can repent and get in line with his truth. When he is on the seat of judgment, now why is it significant that Isaiah saw a time when the Lord would be judging between nations? Because how many know it's really hard when we're seated on the seat of judgment, it's hard to see over the planks in our eyes. We're just being honest here. It's Advent. When we're the ones who are making the assessment and judging, how many know that like David, all too often we cannot see those gaping things in our own life that we are worthy of judgment and condemnation for? Remember the story of Bathsheba? You can look at it, 2 Samuel. When we are left to be judges of ourselves and being the ones who choose right and wrong and being the ones who are saying who are in or out, we end up with a bloody mess. But when the nations stream to this mountain and when we align ourselves with the truth that is being declared, those things that were once used to inflict the bloody mess now become instruments to cultivate flourishing, life-giving, dynamic reality between people, between nations. This is not some yuppie, hippie vision. This is God's vision through the prophet Isaiah. This is the vision that we're meant to get caught up in until long until it's a true reality. Presently, King Jesus has destroyed the barrier and the dividing wall of hostility that was erected between nations through the sending of his son, Jesus. And how many know today that he offers us peace through his blood? Therefore, remember Ephesians 2, you who are Gentiles or the nations, 
and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, that done in the body by the hands of men. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship in Israel, foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. He's talking about the nations. Ephesians 2 is looking back to Isaiah 2. For he himself is our peace. This vision of Isaiah, peace among nations, this is not going to happen, you and I both know, through treaties or legislation. It's only going to come in and through the person of Jesus Christ. Because we will not settle this thing while we're on the throne and seating in the place of judgment. It will only happen as we take our crowns off and we bow before the one who is only fit to rule God's world. He says, for he himself is our peace who has made the two one, Jew and Gentile, by destroying the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility in his flesh, the law that condemns us as sinners. Jesus takes this barrier and he, he, he fully and completely sets it aside by fulfilling all of its commands and regulations. And why did he do this? His vision, Jesus' vision was caught up in Isaiah's vision that the nations would no longer just be fending for themselves, but now in and through his work, the nations with Israel would be creating, would be a new humanity. It says right here in, in Ephesians 2, he would create one new humanity out of the nations and he'd be making peace in this one body by the cross. This is why Isaiah's vision is so compelling. He sees a day, and it's an Advent scripture today, he longs for the day when the church in every city, in every nation, in every culture declares this gospel of peace and lives out that gospel of peace together. That in every nation, they would flock and run and desire to be a part of God's people who experience the peace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For through him, Jesus Every nation, man, woman, boy, and girl has access to the Father by the Spirit. Amen. Beloved, we enter into this longing. The purpose and point of Advent is that we look forward with longing and anticipation for the final and complete fulfillment of the passage that we just looked at. When suffering and sorrow, war and wielding of the sword are forever overthrown and when we enter into the groaning and longing of creation, the ground that has been sopped in blood of the countless millions slain throughout the ages and those presently suffering in Syria, the Horn of Africa and around the world, when that ground longs for the fulfillment of what is true of Isaiah's vision is the vision that Jesus invites his church to get swept up in. A future day when the weapons of warfare are used for cultivating fruit, fruit that causes the nations to be flourishing, for the nations to experience the grace and favor of the Lord Jesus. This is our Advent passage. Let's go up the mountain. He's gonna teach us his ways, not just so that we can have bigger heads, but that our lives will be transformed in light of the truth and that we will walk and live and experience life in a categorically different way than those who don't know the Lord Jesus. 
And this verse five is the last issue of encouragement from the prophet. Come, what are you waiting on? Descendants of Jacob, let us walk, right here it is, in light of the Lord. Live in light of the great salvation now. How many just experienced some exciting times around some dinner tables this holiday season? Did anyone experience any strife or adversity or difficulty? Anyone want to be honest? Who has a perfect family because you're going to line up and we're going to have you pray for us? This gospel, listen, don't get confused that this doesn't apply to you when you see weapons of warfare. How many, how many know we use weapons against each other all the time, like slander, bitterness? Come on, people. This message is not just some, oh, let's wait till all the nations stop fighting. No. How many know that it starts right here in the house of God? It, hearts, it starts right here with those who have access through Jesus to the very courts and presence of God to lay down our weapons of bitterness, resentment, retaliation where we all humble ourselves and we receive the cleansing of the Lord Jesus Christ, we lay down our weapons and we seek to live at peace with all people. Romans 12, verse 15 through 18. This is not just some you know, war versus non-war. Don't get confused in some you know, dialogue here. This is as relevant as the things we do when we receive information about someone else and instead of entertaining that, we go to them. This has, this has total present-day implications how many know that every prophetic vision, yes, there's going to be some things that are always going to be in the not yet, but I want to live in the fullness of what we can experience now. And part of what can make the church so compelling among the nations in that instead of getting even, you and I take the posture of Christ, 1 Corinthians 5 and 6, and we would rather be wronged than parade our problems in front of the world that has no Christ that we would rather seek peace and pursue it than seek bitterness and revenge and let the other person know how much they hurt us. This is the prophetic vision of Isaiah 2. It's so compelling and it's so costly and that's why we groan. That's why we have a season called Advent because how many know not only are nation-nation relationships hard, individual-person relationships are hard. Thank you, Ken. Someone agrees with me. I know they're hard. I'm married, and it's not because my wife's hard to get along with. Don't tell her I said that. Take that from the tape. <laughs> because I'm hard to live with. So how will you walk? The prophet Isaiah sort of leaves it open-handed. Let's walk in light of the Lord. Right, Let's allow him three things as we close. Peace. This is the vision of peace, peace that comes from being taught by the Lord and walking in light of his ways and then working it out in our relationships. So today, I want you to chew on this, this week. Are you at peace with God? Are you at peace with God? Or is there a war raging inside over who's gonna sit on the throne? Are there two mountains in your heart, the mountain of self and this sort of small vision of the mountain of the Lord Jesus and his kingdom? Do you have peace with God? I want you to know, beloved, that that does not have to be an elusive, ever-grasping vision. You can have peace with God today. 
Romans 5.1, through Jesus Christ. You can have peace. Number two, do you have peace with each other? Are there people in your family, people in church, people in your neighborhood, people in your workplace that you're at odds with? This vision demands a response from Isaiah. Beat your swords into plowshares. And then ultimately, not ultimately, but this is one we often forget because we, we want to be so spiritual in the church, but I'm telling you, it's not spiritual to ignore. Do you have peace with yourself? This is not just some self-help. Listen, if you, Jesus, it's arguable if you take the great commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, love your neighbor as yourself. It's arguable that the linchpin there is if you even love yourself. Some of, someone needs to hear that today. Because if you don't love your neighbor, 1 John 4, 17, uh, 1 John 4, 19 through 23, you don't love God. And if you don't love God, you don't love, 1 John 4, 9. So if I don't love myself, I don't have anything to love my neighbor with. And if I don't love my neighbor, God says in 1 John 4, I don't love God. So do you have peace with yourself? Are you living under shame of your past? Are you living under shame of what your father or mother said or didn't ever say over you that you were meant to be spoken, you're treasured, you're loved, you're, you're chosen, you're precious? Do you have peace with God? You can. Do you have peace with another you can do it with all that depends on you. You can make peace and then leave it up to the other person. And do you have peace with yourself, beloved, in and through Jesus? All of these can be true of your life today. Amen. Let's go up the mountain. Let's bow before the Lord Jesus. Let's enter into the longing of this vision that Isaiah saw. And then let's be stunned when we see people streaming all around us to the one to whom we are going after with all of our heart. Amen. Lord, we pause and we say yes to you as we think about your first coming and as we've tried the best we can to build in the tension between the now and the not yet. Lord, we want Isaiah's vision to grab a hold of our hearts and that through Jesus Christ we can participate in this vision a people who know God directly through Jesus, a people that are learning his truth and a people that are allowing that truth to transform their walk, that they're allowing that truth to transform their relationships with one another and that transform us so practically that we live in light of Jesus. Lord, we enter into the story as we begin Advent together. We worship you in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. amen. Can we stand? And I want to just give us this benediction together. If Emily could come and just play. I really, there are so many things you can go out and get involved with. Please check out our, our lobby and our alcove and our worship center and welcome center. But nothing is more important than doing business with God and then going and living in light of it. Amen. Amen. And so I want to just give this benediction and then I'm going to have our prayer team who's going to come and we're just going to have a time. If you need one of those three things, peace with God, peace with your neighbor or peace with yourself. Beloved, Jesus is our hope in all three. So receive this.
the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. He doesn't live in temples built by human hands. So it's not a literal mountain Isaiah's talking about. (laughs) He is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Aren't you glad we serve a God who's fully capable in and of himself? He's not lacking in one ounce. But rather, it's he that gives life and breath to everything. From one man, Adam, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history. Why did he do it? So that they would seek him and reach out for him and they would find him because he is not far from any one of us. Hallelujah. He's not far, beloved. Even with the one in your family or your own heart, if you feel far, you're not as far as you think. In Christ, God has come close. Ha <laughs> ha. Yay. Here it is. In the past, God let the nations go the whichever way they wanted to go with their idols and their lies. But now, he commands all people everywhere to repent and to receive Acts 3.19. Refreshment and to receive Jesus Christ as peace. So may you live in light of that truth this week. And God, as we, we go, for those who need prayer, I pray to give them courage. We love you. We thank you. We enter into the longing of the season. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. You're dismissed. I love you. God bless you. Come and get some prayer if you need it. And go check out all the different ways you can participate in the good news this week.